0: Hello and greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan Longhenry and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And today I'd like to explore a compelling question that we often ask ourselves and it's good to reflect upon. Who are we? A lot of times we look at this in terms of who am I? and try to come up with some idea of our individual purpose for uh, meaning in existence and what motivates us and drives us to be who we are and do what we do. But when we look at ourselves together, who are we? And specifically with this question, this conversation is very much among my fellow Christians who assemble uh, with the Venice Church of Christ or with Churches of Christ in general. Because when we ask the question, who are we, as members of a Church of Christ, we are attempting to understand what makes us us, and therefore what makes the others them. It can be an attempt to alienate, or to hate, or condemn, or demonize them, but it doesn't have to be. Because it also can just be, okay, how come we are who we are? How come we believe what we believe? And how come we do what we do? And this question of who are we, invariably has to reckon with our heritage. Because who we are is at least in a part defined by what we have been given. So what have we been given? What is this thing that we are are perpetuating in some way or another? The past is an anchor in both sense of the term. It can provide grounding that keeps the boat from going um, to and fro but it also can impede movement. It can also drag down when there does need to be movement. Who we are does not have to be entirely defined by what we have been. But even if we want to change things about our heritage or change things moving forward, we still have to grapple with that heritage itself. What is it that we've been given? What was done in the past that continues to shape us? And we're not going to be able to effectively understand who we are if we don't reckon with who we have been and why. And as we enter the early 21st century, it seems to definitely be a time of identity crisis in the faith. That it seems that all who profess Christ are right now experiencing uh, one level of identity crisis. We're trying to figure out who we are as Christians in a society that's rapidly becoming all the more, according to the fad phrase, post-Christian. Uh, believing that christianity has been tried and found wanting even though the so-called christianity that has been tried has not well reflected the christ nor his purposes and we're trying to figure out how to live in a world where the christian faith is looked at with greater skepticism and derision in many places and how we most effectively respond to that so we're all dealing with that as individuals whether we want to admit it or not Uh, as members of churches of christ we are experiencing a further level of identity crisis who are we really and what do we really stand for Uh, we have seen a profound shift in the past 30 years where we now have some currency in quote-unquote greater evangelicalism because the those in evangelicalism have developed a more ecumenical posture and so should we thus see ourselves in greater alignment with evangelicalism or should we continue to insist in our own distinctiveness How important is our doctrinal stance on issues versus practical behaviors? Uh, How do we define soundness? Is soundness in a church primarily defined by what is taught or what is done? Or should we be trying to find a more holistic mixture of all of these? What should be our ideals? What do we privilege and prioritize among all the different ideals that we have in this very messy and compromised world of reality? And so in the midst of this identity crisis, with all these questions swirling around, we do well to explore how we have arrived where we are and that heritage that we've been bequeathed. What of the restoration plea in the 21st century? Is there still value to the call to restore the faith and practice established in the New Testament? How do we best restore that faith and practice of the New Testament in the 21st century? And to try to move this conversation forward, we'd like to explore some of the famous slogans uh, that have defined the Restoration Movement over the past 200 years. And the first one to consider is to seek the old paths. Seek the old paths. What are the old paths? Why should we seek them? And what challenges might exist with some of these old paths? The idea of seeking the old paths is a reference to Jeremiah 6 and verse 16 in which Jeremiah uh, gives the word of Yahweh thus says Yahweh stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths in the old King James Version seek the old paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls but they said we will not walk in it now in its context this verse is Yahweh exhorting the Judahites to return to him the old paths here is the Torah which was given to Moses and we're told here that they did not want to walk in it and therefore judgment was going to come. Now in the restoration movement the call to seek the old paths was an appeal to return to the good way of what God had established in Christ in the New Testament as opposed to the more new paths of the doctrines and institutions of men which have been built or developed since the New Testament. Now what do we make of this exhortation? The New Testament very much demonstrates continual concern over the spread of false doctrines and their practices and their effects. Uh, We look at so much of Paul's early writings, they're focused on the dangers that are being introduced by the Judaizers, these Jewish Jewish Christians who insist that no, no Gentile Christians have to be circumcised, have to follow the Law of Moses, if they want to be saved they need to first join uh, the community uh, of Israel uh, in, in the physical sense. And in Acts 15, we see how the Holy Spirit moves the elders and apostles in Jerusalem to recognize that no, God has accepted the Gentiles as Gentiles. The Gentiles do not have to become Jews according to the flesh in order to become Christians. That now God has recentered Israel on those who follow the Christ. That the promises given to Abraham are now o- obtained through faith. And all of these different arguments that we see Paul elaborating on in the letter to the Galatians, uh, the theology behind his letter to the Romans, um, reflect uh, these concerns and these issues as they're being brought to the church. And his concern about the super apostles in 2 Corinthians uh, likely also come from this same source. So there was the way that God had established, and then there was this insistence on, on this following of, ironically, what would have been considered truly an older path. Now As the Jewish-Christian influence on the church wanes, the new threat comes from the compromise with the greater Greco-Roman world, specifically the Hellenic, Hellenistic philosophies, which we see among the Gnostics. Uh, they're kind of incipient This The start of these trends we see at the end of the apostolic period, so that Uh, Paul, uh, Peter, Jude and John are going to warn about these false teachers who say they have this knowledge who claim the resurrection is past who presume that they have transcended sin in some way. They promote either extreme asceticism and renunciation of the deeds of the flesh or they uh, just fully immerse sensuality as if uh, what the flesh does doesn't matter to the soul and they also deny the bodily existence of the Lord. This is We see this in 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 1, 2 Peter 2, 1 John, the whole letter, 2 John 1, 6 through 10, and most of, most of Jude's letter. Paul would conti- also warn about the dangers of those who would come afterward, who would be going after the doctrines of demons, and specifically in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, uh, those who would forbid marriage and eat certain foods. And there's great interest in how Jude specifically frames uh, the concern that he has. Uh, he wanted to write to his fellow Christians about their common salvation, but he says, he was constrained, found necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That what that, there's this the faith that they've been given, that's what they need to contend for. In 2 Peter chapter 3, that Peter exhorts the Christians um, that in both of his letters has written to stir up their sincere mind by way of reminder to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, to, to, to going back and holding on to those exhortations which they had heard from the apostles and their associates. And so when we go beyond the New Testament and read the 2nd century writings of, uh, of guys like Irenaeus and others who are two or three generations removed from the apostles, they're talking about this idea of a rule of faith. And the rule of faith argument would become primary. And the rule of faith is what was decreed by the apostles and, and they claim, was maintained among faithful Christians. Now, unfortunately, the rule of faith would devolve into creedalism. Um but we can see that its origins weren't necessarily creole. It wasn't just about imposing a certain uh, litmus test based on certain phrasing, that it was actually a deposit. It was something that was given, handed down, uh, just as Paul said it would to Timothy, that what you have heard me say in the presence of faithful men and trust to other men also that they can teach others. This idea that there's this core of what it means to follow Jesus that's been handed down uh, by teacher, to disciple, to who becomes a teacher to a disciple, who becomes a teacher to a disciple, and so on and so forth. And this post-apostolic argument does have merit. The idea of truth coming before error is true, that the truth is established, and then error comes as a corruption of what was taught that was true. The truth is what we've heard from the apostles, and those who do come later and don't agree with the apostles are the source of error. They are not the source of truth. And again, even this Argument would devolve. It would become the idea that if you can trace a line of men uh, in a church from today all the way back to the apostles, that means that that church has maintained the deposit of faith consistently throughout time, no matter how many changes were actually introduced in the process. But the core ideas of these arguments, the kernel of these arguments, come from reflections on the apostles and from the apostles, and they have merit. And so, in this qualified sense, it is good to exhort people to seek the old paths of the apostolic faith and practice. To seek the old paths of the apostolic faith and practice is just another way of uh, of kind of using the Jeremiah illest imagery to talk about what Jude is saying about contending for the faith delivered once for all the saints. So on a biblical level, we can make a strong argument for seeking the old paths. However, when we look at our society and our culture, we can see it's gone the entirely opposite way. Because right now in our society and culture, if you haven't noticed, the goal is to exalt and glorify what is new. And generally what is old is looked at with skepticism and aspersions are cast upon it. It's been tainted, it's been corrupted by the sins of our fathers. Right now, history, and the way we look at history, is going through a major reassessment. And a lot is being made out of those transgressions and sins of the past in light of this new things are now becoming almost uncritically accepted it's only when flaws become apparent with new ways of thinking or new forms of conduct that questions are going to be raised and a a reassessment made and that reassessment will maybe make some changes but it won't reflect upon that uncritically accepting posture uh, that led to what ultimately was whatever problem needed to uh, be corrected a progressive posture has been enshrined in cultural ideology It is somewhat unfortunate that the word progressive is now being used to frame only one half of the political ideology in American politics because, in their own ways, everybody along the political spectrum has bought into some level of progressivism. The idea that humanity is improving and advancing and getting better, and if that's the case, anything that's happened in the past must be inferior. Consider the word primitive. Primitive, when you use it to describe something, generally is used as a slur. The connotation is negative. It, it's not just a simple or, or something that doesn't require as much complexity. Uh, it, it's something that came from old men. You, you, you associate primitivity with cavemen, something medieval, etc., uh, etc., et something that is old and something that you wouldn't really want to return to. And so in this environment where everything that is new is good, it's not surprising that Christians in the church are enduring a lot of pushes from society and culture to embrace a more progressive posture, to kind of... shaved down some of those rough edges of christianity a lot of people find a lot of value in a lot of the things that jesus said and did because it kind of flatters their kind of cultural posture But there's a lot of things that he said and did and the apostles were to exhort that eh, it doesn't work today and we can see all kinds of religious organizations caving to this pressure and embracing that which would have been condemned by their own organizations a few generations ago in terms of many issues are they the right ones? Are we, should we kind of accommodate culture in these ways and, and kind of see the difficulties uh, with, with what we've been given? Or sh- uh, should we st- st- stubbornly cling to the old paths and stubbornly cling to all that happened before us? Well, to begin with, we can raise a lot of valid critiques of our culture's infatuation with what is new. As a comparison, ancient cultures were more skeptical of new things. Uh, when Luke makes a commentary that in, everyone in Athens just loves sitting around and discussing what is new, uh, that, were, that was not a positive thing. The, the connotation was very negative, that they were always just talking about new things. That which was new, which they saw was untested. It had no grounding or rooting. It could be very dangerous. And how many times did we learned that this or that chemical is very dangerous and should never be released in the environment? Lead and gasoline, DDT, asbestos, and things like that. How many times did we learn to regret unleashing new forces into the world without any critical reflection on their use? Hey, remember when everybody thought Facebook and Twitter were just going to bring us all together and be this great social force for good? Yeah, that was interesting days, right? Like a few years ago, and now who's going to hold to that? Now we're looking at it in a much darker, darker way. In reality, all society and culture, even our own, is defined by the wisdom gained from the past. Even this progressive posture that things are getting better is itself based upon confidence about the changes that were made, which is its own for, in its own form of wisdom. And uh, yes, progressivism might eat itself in the end. that would seem that even the changes in itself may not be good. Uh, kind of going even more nihilistic that all these things have been bad. But the whole idea of what a culture is, what a society is, it's something that's being handed down that provides identity and definition. Even if it is in constant change, well, that constant change then becomes a tradition in its own sense, a savage irony, but uh, that's what life is all about. Now, we've got to be very clear about something. This doesn't mean that there's therefore an uncritical acceptance of everything we've been given in, in, in terms of our heritage. Because the value of the old paths is not in their age, but in their wisdom and truth. Yes, Luke demonstrates in Acts 17, 21, the general antiquarian posture, that what is new is suspicious. Okay, But it doesn't say we should accept what is old just because it is old. Uh, For, we looked at Jeremiah 6 and and why Jeremiah said that, again, is a a validation of of following the Torah, the law that had been given. Uh, But we also have Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and in verse 10 in which the preacher says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. This goes back to his whole point in Ecclesiastes 1. Where he says that in verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things yet to be among those who come after. Where we are invited to see history more as a cycle than as a linear uh, point of going from what is worse to what is better. And again, if anything, we've been taught as the uh, 20-teen decade, the teens has developed, is that uh, what uh, we're seeing is things coming back again that we thought were gone. To show us that, no, history is not as linear as we'd imagine, that there are cycles involved, absolutely. And of course, the profound irony is that, we call the old paths of the gospel, 2,000 years ago, where it was not old at all. In fact, it was very new. In the first century, the New Testament uh, was new, was, was being written and compiled. And the message of the gospel is a novelty. And that's why the Romans considered it a superstition. Uh, they couldn't take seriously that there would be this religion that would suggest that God worked through this guy and did great things in the reign of Tiberius. I mean, granddad lived in the days of Tiberius, or dad lived in the days of Tiberius, and, you know how could this have been and in fact a lot of the early christian apologists would ground the legitimacy in what god accomplished in jesus by affirming that it was just the latest chapter in what god had been doing uh, in israel since uh, the days of moses and before and of course they could always claim uh, to the chagrin of the greeks that moses came before homer uh, which was absolutely true a Judaizer of the first century would no doubt have appealed to a very similar line of thinking for the Gentile Christians to say, hey, the old paths is the law of Moses. We know that's good. We don't know about some of these changes that Paul is suggesting. We should seek the old paths of circumcision and observance of the law. If they would have clung to that, they would have been led astray, and they would have um, fallen from grace in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1-5. through five. A conservative disposition can go very astray because it can confuse chauvinistic and corrupt traditions with excellent and received truth. After all, who were the earliest opponents of what we consider the Restoration Movement? Uh, Who derisively called them Campbellites? Uh, But those who wished to maintain their ecclesiastical institutions among the Baptists and the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Calvinists uh, in the 19th century. Uh, We've had to grapple even the church with the legacy of how many who proclaimed the gospel of Christ also tried to proclaim the gospel of white supremacy and enslaved and treated poorly uh, their fellow man and and absolutely upheld patriarchally and misogynistic views uh, toward women so the legacy is not all the gospel because humans are corrupt and corruption tends to infect everything so we shouldn't just uncritically hold to everything that we've been given in the past uh, because not all of it necessarily aligns with the will of God as made known in Jesus so just because uh, a path is old doesn't mean we say ah this is the old path in which we should take it may not be sufficiently old it might be corrupt it's very important. The old paths are not inherently defined by what we have always heard. After all, it remains possible that someone before us fell prey to some new or novel teaching and has diverted us from the truly old path of the gospel. Uh, there was a day in which uh, the paths that are now trodden by various participants and denominations were New paths, now they look like old paths and people try to kind of conflate them all. Uh, But at some point, somebody went a different way than everybody else. Sometimes that's for good because they're leaving something that's corrupt, but it can be bad because they're leaving what was, in fact, the right and good path. And even those who were on the right and good path may be seduced by fear and security, by clinging to things in their culture that are not actually part of the good path and corrupt that uh, particular expression of the faith. But on the whole, even though it is countercultural because it is old, we still do well to appeal to everyone to seek the old path of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It is an old path because it was established two thousand years ago, and yet its Lord still reigns. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth in Matthew, in Matthew twenty eighteen. And Romans one sixteen, the gospel remains the power of God to salvation. God has done great and powerful things in Jesus of Nazareth. His ways have never really failed the world. They redeemed them, and they can still redeem. The apostles saw and experienced these things, and that's why we should accept the testimony of those who were there, those whom the Spirit empowered to explain what it all meant, because Jesus gave authority to his disciples in Matthew 18, 18. Uh, John in 1 John 1, 1 1-4, grounds all that he establishes uh, is based upon his experience of the word of God in Jesus. Anyone after them did not experience the word of God in Jesus. They have heard it as it has been told from others. And so we must cling to what was originally given as that deposit. That's the standard And that's why in 1 John 4 and verse 1, John says to test the spirits to see if they are from God. That we see how consistent they are with what God has already made known in Jesus through the apostles and their associates. In Ephesians 3, verses 10 through 11, we're told that um, it's in the church that the manifold wisdom of God is, is declared to the powers and principalities, that this is the eternal purpose that he's purposed in Jesus Christ our Lord. An eternal purpose continues on forever. It is just as alive and active in 2019 as it was in the year 30, and it will continue on until the Lord returns. The gospel is still God's power to salvation Christians still can practice the simple faith that the Apostles testified about will remain a compelling witness to the world when they're building one up one another up in love and they are striving to maintain the unity uh, of the spirit and the bond of peace and they are embodying the principles we see in Philippians chapter 2 Ephesians 4 uh, where they have love and care for one another that is a powerful compelling witness uh, Today, as it was, as it, as always has been, as it always will be, whatever might be new in religious matters has no intrinsic merit. It should be looked upon with skepticism and suspicion. If it's so valuable and necessary, why was it not made known in Christ? We should ask: Is it a way that culture is trying to get Christianity conform to its newest fad, ultimately to the harm of the kingdom? And we need to look at our own traditions, our own practices behavior, to see if perhaps somebody in the past uh, bought into their cultural tradition, baptized it. And now we've enshrined it and think now we're justified because it happens to be against the current cultural uh, moment and current cultural idea. Uh, just because it's a different culture's idea doesn't make it right every time and age upholds principles that are going to conform to the gospel that are right and good according to what God has made known in Christ every time and age upholds principles contrary to the gospel that are in opposition to what God has made known in Christ we according to what God has made known in Jesus must uphold that gospel preach from the beginning in its purity and its totality Both in where it will be aligned with culture, and also where it is opposed to it. And as part of this, we have to grapple with our own heritage as we seek the old paths. And in Churches of Christ in particular, we have a fraught relationship with our heritage. We have our idealized heritage, the old path we know we should seek New Testament Christianity in its pure form. In the Ideal way, there's just simple Christianity. The attempt to practice a pure faith is handed down in the New Testament, as we see in Jude 1 verse 3. As such, the church has the heritage of the people of God throughout time, wherever they've been, whatever they've endured. This view assumes the entirely non-sectarian, non-denominational position, and always suggests the ideal heritage of what is right, good, and true over time. And for the best of reasons, this position seeks to get away from the us-versus-them posture and the messiness of affiliations that exist in the real situation of the church in time. And then, so there's the idealized heritage, but there's the historical heritage, which is the Restoration Movement. And in the historical heritage, churches of Christ are part of the Restoration Movement. The Restoration Movement was born out of the commitment to the common-sense realism of the Scottish Enlightenment of the late 18th century. It's associated primarily with Thomas and Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, along with many others. Some will therefore call it the Stone-Campbell movement, and it's been known derisively as Campbellites ever since. The Restoration movement was a call to return to the pure simplicity of New Testament Christianity, to get away from the man-made creeds and denominations that were prevalent in Christendom, to come to an understanding of what God has made known in Scripture through our ability to reason and the exercise of common sense. And in this story, Churches of Christ spin off from Disciples of Christ and independent Christian churches by 1906 on account of the northern-southern divisions that uh, uh, developed because of the trauma of the Civil War, the instrumental music, the missionary society, um, search for middle-class respectability versus um, other issues, and so on and so forth. And the Restoration Movement holds on to two poles itself, ecumenism and sectarianism, the Disciples of Christ representing... uh, kind of a sectarian ecumenism, ecumenicism, or being more ecumenical than sectarian, Church of Christ as more ecumenical sectarian, much more sectarian than ecumenical. The historical heritage, by its very nature, makes no claims as to truth or legitimacy. It's just identifying the historical antecedents which have led to churches of Christ being as they are at this particular place and time. And so that's why we have a very fraught relationship with our heritage, because there's the ideal and there's the historical. We can easily pit the idealized heritage against the historical heritage we can try to presume that idealized heritage while suppressing the historical heritage now the reaction to that exaltation of the idealized heritage is a little better uh, most often attempting to discredit that idealized heritage on account of the historical heritage it's foolish for us to try to insist only on the idealized heritage or the historical heritage we must understand our heritage in a much more blended way We must understand that the historical heritage that we've received in Churches of Christ is born out of that idealized heritage. Um, I personally do not have complete agreement with Barton Stone, Alexander, or Thomas Campbell, uh, Tolbert Fanning, David Lipscomb, um, or Harding, or Foy Wallace, or Robertson Whiteside, or uh, J.D. Tan, or any other major figure in the Restoration movement. It's not about maintaining a movement for the sake of keeping the traditions of a movement. For that matter, there are a lot of disagreements among Stone and Campbell, Fanning, Lipscomb, Harding, Wallace, Whiteside, Tant, and many others. Uh, There's widespread disagreement within the movement, and the movement is defined as much by all the things they squabble and disagree about as what they hold in common we might even have reason to cause aspersions on the fundamental premises of the restoration movement in the 19th century for instance the objective or complete validity of the claims of the common sense realist school uh, the fact that so many of the early restoration uh, figures very much believe in american exceptionalism and some concept of, of 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 america's a christian nation either now or in the uh post-millennial future that they thought they were building Uh, But yet, even though we may cast aspersions on some of these ways it has been manifest in time, we can still hold to the Restoration plea. But it's only possible if there is something that animates, that's giving life to the Restoration movement, that there's a path worth seeking there, that indeed there is a need to restore the faith and practice of New Testament Christianity, and that looking at that in the ideal has its value. But we also have to recognize that our historical heritage is how that idealized heritage took root and was made comprehensible Uh, why would anyone on their own come up with the premises we share about the ideal church and how it would be yes i know there's that story that we hear in a lot of churches of christ that if you were to have a bible wash up on the shores of some uncontacted tribe and by some miracle they could read and understand it, uh, they would establish Christianity that would look very much like what we practice. But that's a presumption, and it's really a farcical presumption at that. Because so many of our views and ideas are absolutely shaped by our engagement with other views and ideas about which we disagree. The fact of the matter is the New Testament doesn't have a lot to say about a lot of the divisions and disagreements that erupted after it, which is why those dis- disagreements are so live and have consumed very intelligent well-meaning people for uh, 500 to 2,000 years. Um, the New Testament does not speak to level specificity about the nature of the assembly compared to what has been argued about regarding it over, ever since, so on and so forth. And so Any attempt to consider the church in its ideal form or to presume the cleanest possible history or perhaps that we should not even look at ourselves as part of the Restoration movement is an exercise in self-delusion. It's really Platonism, uh, loving the ideal to the harm of the real. We must always remember that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt within his creation in John 1, 1 and 18. He dealt with people in their mess. He saved people in their mess. His kingdom is manifest in the local in the church which is expressed in local congregations full of people with problems and even institutional problems as you can see when you open the pages of the New Testament. Uh, we're not preserving New Testament Christianity to preserve all the problems that were there in Corinth or the incipient issues in Philippi or the the Deeds of the Nicolaitans, in, as we're in, like, in the Church of Thyatira and others. Uh, no. The New Testament testifies to the messiness of reality. That, but yet God still works to redeem us in that reality. And so we have to own our heritage in the restoration movement if we're going to understand why uh, we are the way we are, because it explains why those who came before us were uh, what they were, Uh, About and to understand their engagement with their world, to understand why they insisted so strongly on certain uh, aspects of the faith more than others. In that quest for understanding, it may not be justification, it may not be legitimacy that we're granting, but a level of understanding so we can look at where we're at today and understand okay, we have the ideal and the real. We're trying to put the ideal into practice to the best of our ability under the power of God. Uh, What in our past is an anchor that helps to ground us so that we don't just go get lost to and fro by every wind of doctrine what is a a a chain that's tearing us down keeping us from really getting to a, a more healthy place in following the path of god in christ so there's going to be that tension between the ideal and the historical or the real And we are foolish to think we're just gonna be able to solve that tension one way or another we're going to live in the real but we need to be animated by the goal of the ideal which is something that you see in the New Testament anyway that the faith and practice is not how we're actually practicing because all of our practice falls short instead we understand the faith and practice is what the Apostles and their associates exhorted based on what God had done in Christ and you hold to that ideal as you're trying to live it out in reality and recognize your faults and failings and as you communicate the gospel to make that distinction to say this is the goal but this is how we fall short and people fall short in different ways and living in that tension which is uncomfortable but so much of coming to a life and faith in god and christ is living in the tension between uh, things we want to have solved that just cannot be solved in our current situation and so hope that we have seen through all of this that it is good to seek the old paths of the gospel of jesus of nazareth and his kingdom that we should seek after the apostolic faith and practice that has been preserved in the new testament we may find that its path is barely trod we might find it overrun with grass and weeds we needed to clear out that path so that we can follow it, to restore the apostolic faith and practice in our time and place. And this is ultimately the plea of restoration that should define the restoration movement. Our great danger is to think that it is done, that we have restored the faith and practice of the New Testament. Because there are still ways in which yet the powers and principalities may have deceived us. Ways in which our practices are not aligned with the gospel, but have conformed to culture in ways we have, uh, can perceive or, or perhaps has uh, has been too subtle for us to recognize uh, in times past. And therefore that there is in fact more that needs to be restored. Or perhaps we had to clear out part of the past so we could get to another part of the path. Um... You can look at that metaphor and, and develop it in many ways if you want. But the goal that we should have is to seek the old paths of the gospel of Christ, to uphold that restoration plea, to find salvation in the and resurrection in Jesus our Lord as we will understand him, based upon the testimony of the apostles and their associates recorded in the New Testament. We again hope that you've been benefited by... Uh, our conversation here. If you have, we encourage you to share it with friends and family and others on social media. If you have any questions, if you'd like to talk about these things in greater detail, if we can be of any service, please uh, reach out to us. Uh, we can, you can find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also uh, on many forms of social media. You can reach out to me personally at DeVerboVitae.com That's www.deverbovitae.com. I again thank you. Have a great day.